In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we are going to conclude a short summer series in stories that Jesus would tell. Stories that he came to describe as called parables. And parables were out to illumine, they were out to confront, sometimes they were out to harden. But they were always out to provoke, to provoke us to thought and to decision. And this morning, on the last Sunday of the series, we, if you will, save the best for last. Because you might say, this is the best story Jesus ever told. Some say so. I might argue, this is the most important story Jesus ever told. And I say that because this story is the one upon which I would argue the rest of the parables rest. What you've heard us already expound through this series, parables about what are the marks of one who follows Jesus, or what it is this kingdom that he keeps talking about that those who are followers live for and inhabit and look forward to its full flowering at some point. All of those are parables are clear and convincing and persuasive, but it is this story upon which the rest of them rest because it is this story that speaks of the heart that is persuaded of something that is non-negotiable. It is this story that speaks to us what is one to be persuaded of regarding who the Lord is before any of us might walk in his way, before any of us might relish the kingdom that he's out to claim. We need this story. And it is an all-too-familiar story. We've got to hear it as if for the first time. But it is a story with two storylines in it. Two storylines that even though it is part of an ancient parable, those storylines show up in every era, in every continent. And sometimes those storylines show up in the single same soul at different times in their life. And I would bet that before we're done, you might hear one of those storylines In your own heart, let's find out. We're in Luke chapter 15. We're starting in verse 11. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you would. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I I have sinned against heaven and before you. I, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting To celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the beautiful word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is the third of three parables that Jesus has just spoken from the beginning of Luke chapter 15. And you really can't grapple with the poignancy or point of this story, of this parable, unless you understand who he's talking to. Audience matters. Context always matters. And who is he speaking to? You read about that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, if you've got your Bible still open, where he says, or where Luke tells us, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So imagine the picture. The most um, reviled people anybody could speak of, the tax collectors and sinners. And the most revered folk in the land, the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're sitting together, probably not next to each other, but they're in the same room. They're on the same dirt. And Jesus is speaking to them, and he knows it. Because with all the brilliance he can muster, he tells a story that works both of their frameworks, both of their mentalities, into the same story. And that same story, therefore, already has tension built in just by virtue of the fact who's listening to it. And that story has tension right from the beginning, because this story is about a family. And maybe you're the tax collectors and sinners and you come from what we know these days as the quote-unquote broken family. And maybe you've got the Pharisees and the scribes who come from that quote-unquote intact family. And maybe they're looking down on those from broken families. Who knows? But there ain't no love lost between them. 
And Jesus is out to tell a story about a family in which the tension begins with the very first line. Two brothers, younger one comes to dad, says to his father, Father, give me the inheritance that is coming to me. That's all he says. No explanation, just do it. Now, to our ears, that's an odd thing to say. You want an accelerated distribution on your inheritance before dad is dead. That, to our ears, is like, what? RCA dog, huh? But in that day, that question, that request is more than odd. It is the height of disrespect. It is a son saying to his father, I want out. I want out of the family. I want what's coming to me. I'm done. He's essentially saying to his father, you are dead to me, and I'm out. Now, in this room, your room, might be some of you actually heard somebody say that to you. Some of you might have said that to a parent. Some of you may want to. But that moment is as poignant and as profound and as tension-filled as you might imagine because that son is saying to his dad, I'm done with you, I'm gone, I'm leaving you behind. A.N. Wilson is a Brit. He is uh, a columnist. He's an author. And he was raised in a, you know, a typical uh, nominal Anglican family growing up. And then he's like, yeah, this ain't for me. I'm not buying it. I'm done. And he kind of you know, converts to atheism, for lack of a better phrase. And the ironic thing about it is what cemented him in his atheism was while he was writing a biography of C.S. Lewis. That he reads mere Christianity and, he, and he's, he's actually yelling at what he's reading because he thinks it's bollocks. I read, I read mere Christianity in college. It was a lifesaver. It was like bringing a lot of threads together that I had never thought of before. I was in the midst of a great big crisis and I needed those words. But for A.N. Wilson, it was kind of like, are you kidding me? This absolutely determines I'm out. And he, and he leaves it all behind. And, and so... He goes on the lecture circuit and he contributes to panel discussions on atheism and, and metaphysics and all that. And he hobnobs with the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. And they all, you know, over drinks kind of craft together this little quote-unquote atheist catechism. You know, when, you know we're, we're far part of the Reformed tradition and, and we, we kind of appeal to this thing called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The qu- first question of that catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The atheist catechism, question one. So there's no God? Answer, nope. Question two, so there's no future life? There's nothing out there? Answer, nope. It's a real short catechism. It's all you need. It's where he went. It's what he did. God for him, as a child, had been a concept, and then at some point he says, you're dead to me. I'm out. I'm taking my things. I'm going to find my freedom. This younger son has said in so many words, in a different way, yep, I'm out. I'm going to leave it all behind. You know what his father does? Okay. 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 No fight, no conversation, no wrangling between lawyers. Well, okay. 
And he goes, and he's got his freedom. And in that first season, all is well. Wine, women, song. Freedom! I am out there at last. It's good. And then, according to the story, his funds dry up right around the same time as the skies do. He's got nothing left. There's the famine. And Jesus is wonderful in his characterization of it. He's not disparaging. He just says, and he came to become in need. Freedom, high flying, and then Icarus has fallen. And so what was the moment of little Lord Fauntleroy suddenly becomes Oliver Twist, and he's an orphan, and he's got nothing, and it's so bad. Remember, Jesus is telling this story to a bunch of Jews, that in this story, this guy is so desperate that he goes and works for a guy to feed pigs. Unceremonial uncleanliness, I don't care, I'm hungry. And he's so hungry that he's willing to eat what the pigs leave behind. It's that bad. It's come to this. What's he going to do? Where is he going to go? Let's go back to A.N. Wilson for a minute. A.N. Wilson is at full stride in his atheism. Living large in this new free world in which he is responsible in submission to no one but himself. But every once in a while, he would admit that there was kind of, you know, cracks in his system that he couldn't quite account for. And so what would he do? He would, to shore himself up in that atheism, he would quickly go grab his volumes of Enlightenment philosopher David Hume to remind him that he wasn't a fool for believing that there was no God. And so he'd read it. And then, by his own telling, A.N. Wilson one day picked up a volume of Mahatma Gandhi. And what does Gandhi plan in his thought? The idea, just the idea, that there might be something larger than what we can taste, touch, see, or reproduce in the lab. This idea that there might be this thing called the transcendent. And he reads that, and it's like, okay. And then, and then Wilson just kind of does his own reflection on his own materialistic atheism, his own naturalism. And he realizes, no matter how you slice it, there is a complexity to our humanity that just pure evolutionary biology cannot account for. And it certainly can't account for this thing that though we have a hard time defining it, we know it's there, and it's this idea of beauty. It's there. We all revel in it. None of us deny it, but we can't account for it just by way of a naturalistic atheism. And he's, and he's stuck. And then of all people he might read, he reads the letters of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who dies hanged two weeks before the end of World War II. And what he reads in Bonhoeffer is insight and serenity that leads for him to have a change of heart. And in that moment, through that process, the father of whom Jesus speaks is no longer the figment of everyone's imagination that he thought, is no longer the tyrant that he would cast aspersions to at every turn. His mind changes. Something shifts. In this younger son, there comes a moment when it says he came to his senses. Now, Jesus is so spare in the retelling of the story. He doesn't say anything else. Uh, You're not sure if this younger son is really having this moment of repentance or if the dude is just hungry. Not sure. Doesn't matter. He's got his walk of shame. He comes up with a speech. He's got his talking points. 
And in that brief speech that he's preparing and probably going over and over again in his head, believing, I can't believe I'm going to give the speech, but I don't have a choice. He says, first of all, in his talking points, Father, he will tell him, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Which sounds a lot like what David says in Psalm 51. Yeah, he sinned against Uriah. Yeah, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yeah, he sinned against Joab. But before he sinned against any of them, he sinned against God. That's what all sin is. It's first and foremost, uh, you don't know. You don't get it. And then in that prompt speech, or that prepared speech, what does the son say? Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as a hired hand. And by that, he's saying, what I've done to offend you has nothing to do with financial. It has everything to do with relational. For me to tell you I want my inheritance is for me to say to you, you mean nothing to me. So he crafts a speech, and he limps home. And you know what? By this point in the story, you can imagine the two demographics that are listening, that the tax collectors and sinners going, oh, man, is he going to get it? And they start maybe, you know, wringing their hands, uh, shuffling their feet, going, ah, the tirade is coming. And the Pharisees are over here, and the scribes are going, licking their lips. It's ready. Father better bring it. And so he limps home. And what happens? A plot twist. On the order of Darth Vader telling Luke that he's his father. Oh, what? Or that, or that Ray this week is wearing a Sith robe. What? Plot twist. Did you catch that? Yeah. You knew that was coming. Big plot twist. Kid limps home. And what does the father do? He's scanning the horizon. And he sees his boy, and he scurries to him. He lifts up his robe, and he starts running. You know what that is? To all of us, that's like, isn't that sweet? You know, in that world, you know what that is? That's scandalous. That is denigrating to a father. No father whose younger son just said to him, however long ago, you're dead to me, should ever run out and kiss and embrace that son. But that's what he does. He scans, he sees, he scurries, he falls on that kid's neck, and he kisses him on the cheek. And before the kid can get past line two in the speech, he's saying, go throw a party. Nobody saw that coming. Because in that day, nobody saw a father ever acting like that. And that's because no one ever saw God like that. No one believed God could be like that. The one who is both holy and righteous and pure and is not afraid of judgment. No one expected him to be that kind of welcoming towards one who had rejected him and then come back. No one believed that. And that's my question to you. Do you believe that? Because look, it's a great story. Like our day, we love that stuff, man. We'll tell that even if it's not true. But the story that Jesus is telling here, at least through the vantage point or the storyline of the younger son, is to ask everybody who heard one question. Are you secretly doubtful that God could not only accept you, but delight in you even after you've rejected him? Are you secretly doubtful? He could never look past that. 
Because it's one thing to believe in God, that he exists. It's another thing to spout John 3.16, for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is quite another thing to believe that if you have given him the high-handed heave-ho, that he would ever welcome you back with anything other than stern eyes. How, how do you know if, if you secretly doubt that kind of welcome from God? How do you know that you're not sure that's really even true? One way is, when you fail or screw up, you think you're going to be haunted by that forever. And that you will only be met with God with a sternness. The way you know that you secretly doubt it is that you probably ask nothing of him because you think you just can't. Because he's not like really close or cares. You know you secretly doubt whether or not this is true, because when you, I don't know, miss a day or a week of, of reading or, or even being still before him, you think you're worthless. There's a million ways in which you could manifest this younger son's mentality, but all of them at bottom is one thing, a secret doubt that he could ever welcome you, even if you've rejected him in that way. And Jesus' answer to us is that God doesn't simply tolerate you, he celebrates you. I don't care what you've done. You come in and be part of my house, I'm going to throw a party. And that's not Luke coming up with it. That's not me projecting wishful thinking upon the story. This is Jesus' words. And that's awesome. And I want to wrap that around me and never let go. And that's not even the main part of parable. Good as it may be, that's not even, I would argue, the main point of what he's telling us. The main point, it comes what's next. Because what comes next is, dad starts barking orders, get the tent, start cooking, kill the calf, set out the china, let's do this, get my robe, here's the ring. When all that happens, what happens? Noise, a clamor. And it starts to kind of, you know, waft its way through the farmland. And Jesus is a great storyteller. It's kind of like this, and, and there is the sound of music and dancing sort of finding its way, like an aroma of mirth and melody. But that aroma of mirth and melody that's getting out from the compound, it only arrives in the nose of the older son as a stench. What's going on, he asks. Somebody comes to tell him, oh, uh, you didn't hear? Your bro's back. Like, he's back and he's alive and your dad throwing a huge party <laughs> you didn't hear what he's doing what is this a joke no it's like don't you hear older son doesn't even walk into the party won't even get close nothing what's dad do you know what dad did when he saw the younger son he ran to him you know what dad did when he saw the older son he didn't sit in there and say his loss he comes outside of the party. He comes outside of the party and says to that the older son, come inside. Come, come on. Come to where the life is. Here's the life, man. You're outside and you're, you're sequestering yourself outside. And then here's the thing. This son has a speech just like his brother. The younger son 
has prepared this kind of talking points, and then the older son, here in this moment, is kind of an impromptu speech, but given what you hear him say, you think, no, you've been working on a speech for a very long time. You've been wanting to say this for a very long time because it sure rolls off your tongue really easily. And what's that older son say? Where's that older son go? Look, these many years I served you. I never disobeyed any of your commands. And you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And then older buddy, older brother gets nasty. And he says, and then this son of yours. You won't even say my brother, but this son of yours. He's devoured your property and spent it on prostitutes. And you throw him a party? In a moment like that, the Pharisees that are listening kind of feel tension because they're like, oh man, uh, you're kind of dishonoring your father right now, but man, you probably needed to tell him that. And in that moment, he's gone crazy. And what does the father do? The father does not look at his older brother, older son and say, how dare you? How dare you speak to me like that? Shame on you. He doesn't say that. What the father says? You've always been with me, son. Everything that is mine is yours. You don't have to work for it in order to get it. You just have it because you're mine. You belong to me. The father in that moment is not denying that his younger son has sinned. He is not denying that that impudence was impudence. He is not denying that that younger son has deeply cost this family. None of that is untrue for him. The father is just saying to his older son, don't let all of that eclipse the bigger spectacle in front of you. Bro is home, man. He was wandering. We all thought he was dead, and now he's here. Don't let that escape you. What is beneath this older son's mentality? What is the inclination that leads him to respond in that way, reflexively, about hearing that his brother is home? I said to you that the question that Jesus puts to us through the storyline of the younger son is this. Are you secretly doubtful that God could be that welcoming in the face of your rejection? But I think that the question that the older son's storyline is putting to us is this. Are you secretly resentful of everything that God asks of you? Do you resent him for the obedience of living inside of his home? Does that bristle in you? See, the older son, he rattles off his little affidavit. I've worked for you for years. I kept my nose clean. And I get jack from you. Nothing. And that's why he's bristling. But why is he bristling? Because in his mind, service, obedience, and keeping your nose clean has a point to it. But the point to it is not what service, obedience, and keep your nose clean is really ordered to. What the older son teaches us is that there is a form of obedience that looks and smells like obedience, but which in truth is just a stench to God. 
There is a way of complying with him that is begrudging, that you do it and you may not say it, but inwardly you are seething. And the older son's world is to show us that while he was working for his father, it was not for love of his father. It was for whatever he might get from dad now or later. Why am I so impassioned about this? Because this is me. And I know this is me because I have a distinct memory of walking around a now defunct water park in Houston, Texas when I was in the seventh grade. Walking around with a bunch of buddies, one of whom was, you know, the de facto class clown of the school. He would go nuts with anybody. He would mouth off to all sorts of teachers. He didn't care if he went to the principal's office. And one day, because obviously when you're walking around a water park, you want to wax philosophical. what you do right he asks me kind of out of the blue hey why don't why don't you ever mouth off to the teachers why why don't you ever get sideways with them why why are you always you know doing the prim and proper thing and without even thinking about it i said well because i need them to kind of get ahead i kind of need them to advance not well like they're my teachers they're worthy of respect or or not like who am I to mouth off? I'm the student. And, and certainly not, well, the Lord God Almighty makes me humble, and therefore I'll speak to those in authority. <laughs> Didn't say any of that, right? What I'm all about is, now I'll treat them respect because they're a means to an end. You know what that is? That's mercenary. You don't care about what you're living for. You just want the payoff at the end. That's the older brother's mentality, and I've learned how to work that into an art form in my life, and it is what God is working on in me even now. That's our world. That's our moment. How how do you know if you secretly resent God for everything he's asked of you? Well, how do you respond when you see somebody who just really messed up big time? How do you respond when they're shown mercy? Is there a pang of what? Gross. Where's the justice? But more likely, what you feel is a lot of times like, you know, I've put a lot into this, and I'm getting not much in return. It's because you see God as your sugar daddy and not the sovereign Lord of all things. And I know it because I'm him. Think about Jesus. It's both beautiful and infuriating. He doesn't finish the story. He leaves us hanging. Like, we don't know what older bro says to dad. We don't know if older bro ever teach, talks to younger bro again. We don't have a clue. He just leaves it there as if to say, let him have his ears, let him hear. Now, far be it for me to imagine what Jesus might have said or what these two guys might have said later in the parable. I, that's dangerous. You don't ever add to the scripture. But, I think it's possible to imagine what would it be like for those two brothers to talk to each other again. So I'm going to, we're going to put for you a very brief radio play style excerpt from C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. We've mentioned it on a number of occasions here recently. We're going to show you a part just now, now and it's, it's not about between two brothers, it's between two colleagues. You can come up, it's okay. And So just reorient you to the storyline. It's C.S. Lewis's imagination of what if a bunch of people that lived in hell 
took a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven, and what kind of conversations with the hellish ghosts have with the heavenly spirits. And if you're a hellish ghost, the closer you get to heaven, the more thin and insubstantial and kind of, um, you know, impetuous you get. And if you're from heaven, if you live in heaven, you're this luminous, strong, solid body. And here is another conversation between one of those hellish ghosts and one of these heavenly spirits. And what these two guys were, were colleagues at one time on earth. And the one who lives in heaven had at some point committed a murder. And I'm daring saying that you're going to hear in this brief excerpt the kinds of hearts that are portrayed in this parable. So here's an excerpt from The Great Divorce in the genre of a radio play. Attention, WGMR radio listeners. This is live streaming radio from WGMR. That's Grace Mills River. And we have exciting news from one of our sponsors. For the first time ever, shot by television in Gimbel's. That's right, shot by television. What if shopping could be reduced to one wonderful, walloping piece of entertainment? Like a little piece of heaven. Will it work? We don't know. But we're going to have the thrill of a lifetime finding out. And get our latest fun toy for the kids, the Slinky. That's right, the Slinky. You all need Slinkies. Televisions are provided by RCA Victor, Gimbals. Nobody undersells Gimbals. And now, we return to the dramatic reading of C.S. Lewis's latest, The Great Divorce. What I want to understand is what you're here for, pleased as punch, you a bloody murderer, while well, I've been walking the streets down there and living in the place like a pigsty all these years. That is a little hard to understand at first, but it is all over now. You'll be pleased about it presently. Till then, there's no need to bother it. No need to bother about it. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? No, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I, I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me. And that was how everything began. Yeah. Personally, I'd have thought you and I to be the other way around. That's where we'd landed. That's my personal opinion. Uh, very likely we soon shall be. If you'll stop thinking about it. Okay, look. I've gone straight all my life. I'm not saying I'm a religious man. I don't say I didn't have my faults. But I did my best all my life. And I did my best by everyone. That's the sort of person I was. I've never asked for anything that was not mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I did my job. That's the sort of person I was. And I don't care who knows it. It would be much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I I'm just telling you the sort of person that I was. I'm not asking for anything but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you never dressed like that on the earth, and I'm only a poor man, but i got to have my rights, same as you. Oh, no. It's, it's not as bad as that. I, I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. And you will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. That's what I'm saying. I haven't got my rights yet. I've always done my best. I never did anything wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Well, who knows whether you will be. 
Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of person I am. I only want my rights. I am not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do. At once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. That may do very well for you, I dare say. If they choose to let in a bloody murderer all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their way. It's not my way. Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd have been here a long time ago. You can tell them that I said so. You can never do it like that. Hell's ghost sounds a lot like what we heard in the older brother. I just want what's coming to me. I'm a decent guy. I did everything that I can. And the, the spirit from heaven sounds a lot like what the younger son would say. When, when that guy is asked, are you ashamed of the murder? He says, no, not as you mean. I, I don't look at myself anymore. I've given up myself. Here's a question. What will both burst your bubble about your own self-righteousness, but also rescue you from your own self-condemnation for everything that you've done that you regretted? What will answer your secret doubt about whether God could ever welcome you in your rejection, but also Answer your secret resentment about everything that he asks of you. What will do all of that? That story. That story of which the parable is an anticipation of. Because yes, this parable is about two storylines, about two sons. And there, most of the language goes there. But the best language is about the father. And how does the father answer? How does the father answer the one who rejected him but returned, but who resented him and could not rejoice. It's the same answer. It's his love. And how are we sure that the Father is like that? You have to look at that cross. T.S. Eliot wrote a play called The Cocktail Party. I've never read it, but I did read a quote from it. And in that quote, one character says this, Half of the harm that is done in the world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them. Or they don't see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. You might think that the older son and the younger son are two very different people. I might like to argue that they're actually the same person appealing to the same end, and that is to think well of themselves. They're just trying to use different means to get there. The younger son is out to think well of himself by believing that he can find his way and live in his freedom, and what does he discover? At some point, he reaches a limit and he is in need. And the older son, to think well of himself, thinks that he can just comply with everything his father ever says and therefore be able to produce this little resume to his father to say, I'm in, I must be important to you. And to that, by that mentality, what does it lead to? Just a brutishness and resentment. And this father, 
explodes both mentalities, and he does so through the work of his only son. What is the answer to us? It's to ask for the bleeding charity. I don't need any bleeding charity, the ghost says, to which the spirit says, then ask for it. You do. It doesn't work like you think it does. If you're in this room today and you're wandering and you think God is either a figment of your imagination or a tyrant, I I invite you to ask for the bleeding charity. And if you're in this room feeling very superior and self-righteous about everything that you've done and looking down on all those that you think are substandard, I would only say to you, because this parable says to you, please be reminded that the only way you can obey and have any goodness in him is because you are the beneficiary of the bleeding charity. That's the story. That's his story. It's the story he invites us to. God help us. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the beauty in it. Help us to see you in it. Help us to see your tenderness and your severity. Help us to see your justice and your mercy. Help us to see your grace and your truth. Help us to believe and to love and not fear and to walk in your way, not because we think it will oblige something from you, but because you are deserving of it. In Jesus' name, amen.